you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 26. You really, um, we're going to do 26 through 40 today. You really um, do yourself a, a, a great service and benefit if you read chapter 6 in its entirety. Because then if you read chapter 6, then you're going to want to read some of what comes before and after it. And before you know it, you just start reading the whole gospel of John. And, you know, that's, that's a good thing. But chapter 6, if uh, we'll, we'll refer to a couple verses that we're not going to read right up front here. Uh, just in terms of trying to, uh, to see the broader context and how the, uh, the encounter that Jesus has with this crowd who seeks him out to see how it plays out. Um, but just for the sake of time, we're just going to take uh, this middle section, so to speak, read through it and, uh, and just kind of try to walk our way through three basic steps. So if you have your Bibles and you're in John chapter 6, again, we're going to start at verse 26. You follow along with me as I read. I'm reading from the New American Standard, just in case it sounds a little different from yours. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal." They said, therefore, to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They said, therefore, to him, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus, therefore, said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said, therefore, to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Father, we take it on faith because of what you have revealed in your word. That your main plan and the consummation of all things will result in making your son, Jesus Christ, glorious and beloved in heaven where he has now ascended. And that one day, all of your chosen people will actually see with our own eyes his glory and we'll be able to love and glorify him forever. Father, the frustration that we have oftentimes is that we don't love you or your son or your spirit enough. But we thank you that even though we see dimly now that we can still look forward to a day when we'll see in full clarity 
Thank you that even though we love little now, one day we will be recreated and renewed to love in a way that we can't possibly comprehend right now. We ask that as we go to your word, that you would be glorified in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, we ask that you would enable us to hear your voice in this passage. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open ears and open eyes so that we might hear and see what it is that the Lord has spoken. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Seeing is believing, except when it's not, right? Uh, I think one of the things that happens here in this passage that we're looking at this morning is that you're forced to come to the realization that there are two kinds of seeing and that in having two kinds of seeing or two kinds of sight, one is significantly better than the other. So in the passage that we just read, it starts off by Jesus saying in verse 26 to this crowd that sought him out, truly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now, you have to pause right here and you have to say, especially if you've had the opportunity to read the verses that precede, that Jesus seems to be, this statement that Jesus makes, seems to be at odds with what John writes as he narrates this event. So if you go back earlier in chapter 6 to verse 2, notice what John says as he's recounting these episodes in Jesus' ministry. In 6-2, John says, a great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And then he goes in and he gives the account of the feeding of of the 5,000. And it says in verse 14 again, John says, When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is of truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. You, you see that? John says very clearly, The people saw the signs that Jesus was doing, and because they saw the signs, they followed Jesus. They sought him out. But then when we get to Jesus, Addressing the crowd that sought him out, Jesus says right up front, you seek me not because you saw signs. Well, which is it? Did they see or did they not see? Well, the answer is both. The point that Jesus is making here is that there are two kinds of seeing. There's the one kind of seeing or the one kind of sight that that all of these people have. They see Jesus perform a miracle. They see 5,000 people fed with these scraps of a sack lunch and they're amazed. They marvel at it. And they're so caught up in what they see Jesus do that in the verses that follow in 6.15 through 25, you find out that the people who had been fed by Jesus actually travel cross-country, hunting him down, trying to find him again. These are very intent, diligent, aggressive seekers. 
they saw the sign that Jesus did and they sought him out, except that Jesus says, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs. The point that Jesus is making is not that they didn't see the sign, they didn't actually see people being fed, but they did not see what the sign signified. And in this then, Jesus makes a distinction between the motivation that the people have in coming to him in the first place. So this is point number one. We seek what we see. Jesus says, you're coming to me not because you saw the sign and understood what that sign was pointing to, but because when you saw the sign, all you saw was a free meal. And so you're coming to me not because I have something more to give. You're coming to me only for this temporal fleeting gift. Jesus wants them to understand that when you see something like me feeding 5,000 people, all of that is a sign to point to something bigger and better. Namely, that in the same way we have to eat in order to live, there is a bigger, weightier kind of food that we need if we are to live eternally, which is why Jesus continues to come back and talk about finding this bread or this food that doesn't just fill the belly and sustain you for another day, but this food that you take in and satisfies you for the rest of your life and actually extends your life into eternity so that you never suffer ultimate death and judgment. So here's one of the dilemmas in, in, the, way that, in the way that we think. Let me not put this on you. Here's one of the difficulties in the way that I often think, right? We look at someone who is wants to give Jesus a shot or who is seeking Jesus out. And the natural assumption is, is that any kind of seeking of Jesus is a good thing. Except that's not what Jesus seems to indicate in this passage. Jesus seems to say that there is a way to, quote unquote, seek me and yet not really seek me at all. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis, we'll put it up on the screen, that I think illustrates this well. This is from his book, The Four Loves. Lewis says this, We use a most unfortunate idiom when we say of a lustful man prowling the streets that he, quote, wants a woman. Strictly speaking, a woman is just what he does not want. He wants a pleasure for which a woman happens to be the necessary apparatus. How much he cares about the woman as such may be gauged by his attitude to her five minutes after fruition. And then in classic Lewis style, one does not keep the carton after one has smoked the cigarettes. You get the point that Lewis is making? We, we use this wanting, seeking, coming language in reference to Jesus all the time, and yet Jesus wants us to know and wants this audience to know that he's speaking to that there are vast, there's a vast difference between just natural sight and spiritual insight. 
that there is a difference in coming to Jesus because he's going to satisfy some felt need that you have as opposed to coming to Jesus to satisfy your true need. So one of the questions then that has to be brought to bear on our Christian life as we live and as we walk by faith is that it's helpful for us to come back and to say and to ask, what do we see when we see Jesus? These people saw free bread, right? They saw Jesus as a meal ticket, not as a savior. Jesus wants them to understand, you're you're chasing the wrong thing. Your greatest need is not where you're going to find the next meal and whether or not you have enough money to pay for it. Your greatest need is that you're dead in your sin and you need not a baker, not a cook, you need a savior. We don't have to worry about this though because we, you know, we've got Publix and Winn-Dixie and we just pull bread off the shelf. So we invent new ways of seeking Jesus without really seeking Jesus, right? Your marriage is having difficulty, go to Jesus. Jesus is your marriage counselor. Your kids are not well behaved, perhaps even going off in wild, stray paths, rebellion, go to Jesus. Jesus is going to be your family therapist. Jesus is your financial counselor. He's your guidance counselor. He's your tutor. He's your all these things. You know what the problem is in coming to Jesus as a marriage counselor, as a family therapist, as a financial advisor, as a retirement planner, as a broker, you, you fill in the blank, whatever you're tempted to approach Jesus as. You know, what the, you know what the main problem is there with that? You go to a marriage counselor or a therapist or a broker or any of these people only as long as they provide you with the service that you're looking for. And then you're done with them. When the marriage is healed, no one goes back to the marriage counselor. They don't need him anymore. When the kids are polished and clean and saying yes ma'am and no ma'am and they're acting like every good little Christian kid should, you don't need a family therapist anymore. You don't need Jesus. When your finances are secure and when you're comfortable, you don't have any need, you don't have any pressure, you don't need Jesus anymore. Jesus is just the ticket that gets you these other things. But once you've got the ticket and you get what the ticket gives you, you throw the ticket away. And Jesus says, if this is the way that you approach me, you truly have not seen me. The question then, as far as application goes is when you think of Jesus Christ, when you think about Jesus, what do you think of? Who do you see? Who do you hear? People, I got to tell you, if we do not see first, if we do not think most often and most deeply 
of Jesus as Savior, as Redeemer, as Sin-Bearer, as King, we're missing it. Let me, let me pause for a minute, kind of step to the side, just one parent to another for all you parents who are out there. Grandparents, too, to the extent that you have an opportunity to, to teach or invest in the lives of your grandchildren. Parents, we, this from someone who's done it myself, right? We, we all know the tendency to make Jesus the manners police, Right? Oh, Anthony, share with your brother because that makes Jesus happy. You don't want Jesus to be unhappy. Or you got a big test coming up? Well, Jesus is, is your tutor. He's your study aid. You know, pray to Jesus. Ask him to help you on your test. All, all of which has a grain of truth in it. But the dilemma, though, in these kids growing up who then essentially abandon the church in part, not always... But oftentimes, I think, probably has more to do with the fact that they've never actually seen Jesus for who he is. And when you can find a better GPA, or when you can find a date or a spouse on your own, you don't need Jesus anymore. Parents, your kids need to see Jesus as a sin bearer. Which means, in part, they need to be able to see and recognize their sin. One of the great things about lovingly, graciously coming alongside a child and confronting them with their disobedience, with their lawlessness, with their sin, is the fact that in doing that, you're able then to follow that up and present to them just how desperately they and we need a Savior. They've got to see that. So we seek what we see. If you see Jesus today... As your marriage counselor, as your therapist, as your financial advisor, that, that's what you're seeking. You're not coming to Jesus for pardon. You're not coming to Jesus to be reconciled to a holy God. You're coming for fringe benefits. If, however, you see him as your substitution, the one who takes on God's judgment in your place, you'll come to him for salvation and forgiveness. You'll come to him for pardon. What you see when you look at Jesus is what you seek. Point number two. We must see if we are to believe. And by that we mean we must see more than just bread or a happy marriage or well-behaved children or financial security. We must see Jesus for who he is. We must see a Savior if we are to believe. Notice what happens as the conversation continues. Jesus has told them, look, don't work for food that perishes. That's here one day and gone the next. That's in verse 27, right? You, you people have traveled all night trying to find me. You've hunted me down. No phones, no GPS note, right? at great labor and expense to find me just so you could find 
another meal. If you work that hard for a meal that's only going to last you, what, six, eight hours, 12 hours, depending on how much you like to eat, how much more should you be willing to work for food that never goes away, that always keeps you filled, and that not only fills you internally, actually gives you eternal life? Right? That makes sense. You work this hard for this lesser food, you should work infinitely harder for infinitely better food. When they hear this, they say in verse 28, good question, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Okay, if we've got to work for this food, for this bread that you're talking about, better bread, what do we have to do? What's the work that we have to do in order to get it? And Jesus says in verse 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You see the beautiful paradox? You'll kill yourself working to provide a meal for yourself and your family. And when it comes to finding the only kind of bread that truly satisfies and that gives unending life, you know how hard you have to work for that? Not at all. The work that gets this eternal bread is faith. It's actually no work at all. So, go back and put yourself in the position of these people who are hearing Jesus say this. They've asked, what kind of work do we have to do in order to get this better, long-lasting, life-giving bread? And Jesus says... Faith, believe. That is a tremendous deal, right? Notice the response. The response is not fantastic, give it to us. We believe. The response is this in verse 30. They said therefore to him, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Does this strike anyone as odd? The people are following Jesus. They're seeking him out. John tells us in verse 2 and verse 14, precisely because they have seen Jesus perform signs. When Jesus says, tries to communicate to them that these signs are pointing to something bigger and better and you can get it just as a matter of faith, what do they ask for? They ask for another sign. Why? They just saw a sign the day before. Why are they looking for another sign? It's because of what Jesus has already said. Yeah, you saw the sign, but you really didn't see what the sign was pointing to. People, here's the dilemma of the human heart. The dilemma is, is that we have to see Jesus as king, as savior, as God, as Lord. Otherwise, we will not trust him for our salvation. But, just like the people in John 6, if I don't see that, if I don't see him, there's nothing that you can show me that's ever going to, that's ever going to cause me to say, I've seen enough. 
right? These people witnessed a miracle right in front of their eyes, and they're still asking for proof that Jesus is trustworthy. They're still asking to see evidence of the fact that Jesus has been sent from the Father to deliver his people from sin and from death and from judgment. People, I've got to ask, if those people who actually stood in front of Jesus could hear his voice, could see Jesus doing these miraculous things and still not get it, is there any way that we're better off not seeing Jesus in the flesh? Not seeing miraculous signs? Not seeing the lame walk? The dead raised? 5,000 fed? How is anyone ever going to see? Let me encourage you in your witness to lost co-workers, family members, to children, grandchildren, friends, whatever it is, understand, understand that the fight for faith is a fight for sight. Let me say that again. The fight for faith is a fight for sight. When you share Jesus, when you when you present a testimony, a witness as to who Jesus is and what he's done, and you say, this offer is freely presented to anyone who wants to take it. Right here, just faith, trust. You believe that Jesus took your punishment, that Jesus offers you pardon in the throne room of God? He gives you that pardon just for believing that he's able to give it to you. You, you tell them that, you present it. If, if their eyes are not open to see Jesus as that sin bearer, if their eyes are not open to see Jesus as glorious, they're not going to believe. That's why it can be so frustrating and so mystifying to talk with people whether it's in apologetics or in a Bible study or anything like that. And you can give them the most well-crafted, airtight argument in defense of the Christian faith, and it's never good enough. They don't see it. And if they don't see Jesus, it doesn't matter what else you show them. Nothing that you show them is ever going to be enough for them to see in order for them to see Jesus. So notice just a handful of passages here that go to highlight how important it is for eyes to be opened in order for salvation, conversion to happen. Acts 26, 18, here's Paul giving an account of his encounter with Christ and the call that Christ puts on him. Jesus said to Paul, he's sending him out to the Jews and the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. You're going out to open eyes, Paul. If their eyes aren't opened, they don't believe. They have to see what you saw on the Damascus Road. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you see that? People have to be able to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ through the pages of Scripture. If they don't see it, they're not going to get it. Not in any profitable, life-changing, life-saving sort of way. Last one, Ephesians 1.18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. The fight for faith is a fight for sight. We have to be able to see Jesus as Lord, as Savior, if we're going to trust Him as Lord and Savior. So here's, here's the tension then as we come to the, the third point. The third point, and something that you, I, I don't know how you work your way around this in light of the passage that we have here. The third point is that in light of what we've said about the importance of seeing and believing, the ability to see and believe on Christ is a gift from the Father. If these people who are walking with Jesus, who are seeing these miracles, who are hearing his teaching, hearing his voice, if they can see all of this and yet remain blind, if they can see and yet not see, See the sign, but not see what it signifies. Have sight, but no insight. After all of this that's put in front of them, how is anyone ever going to be able to see? And this is where this last part of our passage, where Jesus addresses this. Skip down to verse 35. After asking for this bread, Jesus says, this eternal bread... Life-giving bread. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Here's the tension, verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. You, do you feel that? That irreducible tension? Jesus says, if you see and believe, it's yours for the taking. Nevertheless, you've seen me and you don't believe. Here's the solution. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Don't, don't miss the connection. Right? Jesus is talking about sight, 
and faith. You see, but you don't see. I speak the truth, but you don't believe it. You, you, don't, you don't recognize who I am. And he talks about better bread that he has to give them. They're asking, okay, give us this bread. And Jesus says, here's how you get it. Everyone who sees and believes, that's, that's it. That's the bread that gives eternal life. But I've already said, you've seen me and you don't believe. And then he goes off on what seems to be sort of this out of place, disconnected little mini discourse on all that the Father gives me will come to me. What, what in the world does that have to do with this conversation about seeing and believing and the bread of life? Jesus isn't going off on a rabbit trail. It's not like he's, like he's lost his train of thought. The point is this. You have seen me and yet you do not believe. However, there are those to whom my Father will give sight. He's, he's given me a people to redeem. And because he's given them to me, they will most certainly see and believe. But the sight that we receive, the sight that they receive from the Father is a different kind of sight. Can I, aside from the context, can I, can I show you even exegetically how this works itself out? If you go down to the very end of this passage, verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son, everyone who sees the Son and believes may have eternal life. If you go back up to where, where we started in this passage, where Jesus is saying, uh, you saw the signs, or you didn't see the signs, and the people are saying, what sign do you show so that we can see and believe? All of those seeing verbs are all the same Greek word, harao. I tell you the truth, you seek me not because you harao'd the signs, and the people say, what sign will you show so that we can hurao, so that we can see? At the end, though, when Jesus says, everyone who beholds the Son, everyone who sees the Son, he doesn't use hurao. He changes it to another verb. And I think the reason that this is done is because what Jesus is showing, or what John is intending to show us through Jesus' teaching is that this sight that you don't have, it is a totally different other kind of sight that the Father gives to his people. So we're not talking about two groups of people who have the same exact kind of sight and these people just do something better with it. They figure it out. They're smarter. They're sharper. We're talking about two groups of people, one who has the natural inborn sight that everyone has on the day that they're born, and then we're talking about another miraculous gift of sight that's able to see beyond flesh and blood. People, at the end of the day, for myself, it, this has to be instructive for me. I have to come back to passages like this even though I may not necessarily be one on the outside 
who hasn't, who hasn't figured out or hasn't seen who Jesus is, I still need to see this because I have to be reminded, Jonathan, there's nothing special about you. The only reason that you know who I am, the only reason that you know my son is because I gave you the sight that you didn't have. And as we're witnessing and as we're working and as we're giving testimony and we're trying to bring other people to the light of Jesus, we have to remember that they will not see and believe unless the Father gives them the gift of sight. So what do you do then? You throw your hands up and say, well, the ones that are going to see are going to see and the ones who aren't going to see, (laughs) tough. No, you get down on your knees and you pray and you intercede and you ask God to do a miracle to make blind eyes see. Let me give, just in closing, let me give one, I hope, one word of encouragement to those of you who are here who are Christians. One one of the things that, that can be easy to do in a passage like this Right? You see what Jesus says about, you know, you're seeking me not because you really saw what the signs were pointing to, just because you saw bread. Right? If you have any kind of an introspective tendency, or if you overanalyze things too much, you, you know what you start to do in a passage like this? Some of you probably have already started to do it. What? Maybe I haven't really seen. Right? These people thought they saw it all, thought that they understood it all. And Jesus says, you don't have a clue. You guys are blind and you don't even know that you're blind. And so you're reading this, I'm reading this. I'm saying, well, how do I know that that same thing hasn't happened with me too? Maybe I'm just coming to Jesus because I'm coming to him for for perks, creature comforts, right? Felt needs, not my true need. I think this is one of the reasons why the psalmist says in Psalm 119, I know that all your judgments are true and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In faithfulness, God afflicts his children. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your law. Here's the encouragement. One of the ways that difficulties in this life function for the glory of God and Christ, one of the ways in which the Spirit uses difficulties is to show that this sight has been granted. But in in this sense, if you come to Jesus and you're looking to Jesus for bread or a happy marriage or well-rounded kids and you don't get that, you're done with Jesus, right? I mean, you may not say as much, but you know, there's no, there's, you're not chasing, you're not pursuing, you're, you're, you're done. You, Jesus did not live up to expectations. What happens, though? How do you explain the fact that on the one hand, there are some people who don't see what they want to see, 
may not see the blessings that they're hoping to see, and they fall to the wayside. And then you've got another handful of people who don't see what they want to see, and yet they don't fall away. They don't have perfect health, but they're still looking to Jesus. They don't have perfect kids, and they're still looking to Jesus. Every month, they're wondering how they're going to pay the bills, and yet they're still looking at Jesus. Why? I think God graciously, providentially, strips those things away from his people so that he can say, look, look look what I did for them. Look what I did to them. I took everything away. You know You know what the evidence is that they've seen me in my son? They've really seen? Because there are lots of other things that they don't see, but they're keeping their eyes on me. They're not falling away. And so there's coming a point in time when every child of God stands before the throne and a loving, gracious, heavenly father says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were looking for miraculous healing, and you didn't see it, but you saw Jesus, and you pressed on. Well done, good, faithful servant. You were looking for a miraculous act in the life of your child. You did not see what you were hoping to see, but you saw Jesus, and you pressed on. Well done, good, faithful servant. You suffered physical ailments. You suffered diseases. Life was cut short. You did not see what you hoped you would see, but you saw Jesus, and you pressed on. Well done, good and faithful servant. And for those who have that kind of sight, who can walk through life not seeing so many things that we hope to see and yet still keep our eyes focused on the side of Jesus Christ? It makes all the difference in the world. And it's summed up beautifully when you skip down. Here's, here's where we'll end. When you skip down to chapter 6, verse 66. Jesus goes through this discussion with these people. They're growing increasingly frustrated and testy in hearing what Jesus has to say. John tells us this in verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore because he said hard things, because he he asked them to see what they could not see. So they chucked it. They left. They went home. Verse 67, Jesus said, therefore, to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That, that's the voice, that's the confession of a man who's had his eyes open to see. Yeah, I don't see all this other stuff, but, but Lord, where am I going to go? Who, who else am I going to go to? I'm tied, I'm bound, I'm ruined. 
on you. My hope and prayer is that this becomes increasingly the mindset, the attitude, the gracious spirit that's part of your Christian life. That more than the trappings of this life and the trivial, shiny, sparkly prizes, the cheap dollar store gifts of life, that more and more and with greater clarity you come to see the real prize and that the more that you see the real prize in the face of Jesus Christ, the harder you run, the more you chase, the more faithful you are, the more gracious you are in your witness and your testimony to those who have not yet seen but who one day will. Let's pray. Father, would you graciously protect us from ourselves and from our selfish desires and ambitions that would have the audacity and the arrogance to think that we can use you and your son as a means to our ends. Open our eyes so that we could see your glory in the face of your son, Jesus Christ, through the pages of Scripture. May your Holy Spirit stir our hearts and our minds. And even now, Father, if there are those here in this room who do not see, would you graciously, miraculously open their eyes so that they would see Jesus for the first time, so that they would see their need for pardon and forgiveness and to be saved from the coming judgment for their sin. Father, for those of us who are here as your children, we thank you for the gift of sight. We ask now that you would continue to graciously give us greater clarity in our vision of you and that the more that we see of you, the more we die to ourselves, the more we're stirred and we're convinced that following Jesus is ultimately worth it. We ask all of this in his name, amen.